This is the Physical Activity Researcher Podcast, a podcast for researchers of sedentary behavior, physical activity, and sports. Join for a relaxed dialogue about research design, practicalities, and, well, anything related to research. Learn from your fellow researchers useful and relevant information that does not fit into formal content and limited space of scientific publications. And here is your host, researcher and entrepreneur, Ollie Tikkanen. And, and if we continue about inactivity versus sedentariness, there's a lot of, lot of studies about sedentary behavior and it impacts our health. How do you see the interplay of those two? Probably exercising have bigger health impacts, but is is a little bit probably more challenging to do for persons than, than for example, breaking up sitting. How should we improve? approach these in in a larger scale to improve public health well that's an excellent question it's it's a very topical question it's it's something we're struggling with in our field right now for sure um and i think the deliberations of the physical activity guidelines committee in 2018 in the u.s um you know considered that very very carefully and I think if you read the the guidelines and their the report, you see that um, there's been a shift in focus and a shift towards the idea that you know the target is 150 to 300 minutes, you know, of moderate activity per week. There's a range, 150 to 300. That's where we see the biggest benefit from all the epidemiology studies and everything else. That's the range we should be aiming for. However, you don't need to hit that range to get health benefits. And that has been a major thought shift in these guidelines is that any activity is good. You know, even if you can't get to that 150, you're going to get benefits from the activity. So I think that is, that's one message that we need to, um, to really perpetuate that, you know, 60 minutes a week <laughs> is a lot better than zero, you know, so you're not failing if you don't get to 150 minutes. So I think that that's an important message. And folding in the sedentary behavior now, again, it's it's not that we need everybody to stand up for 12 hours a day, you know, it's that we should be replacing as much sedentary behavior with some level of physical activity, whatever that person can handle, you know, we see these new isotemporal substitution analyses people are doing, these compositional data analyses where you take into account, you know, the 24-hour period of the day. And we consistently we see that if you replace 30 minutes of sedentary behavior with 30 minutes of light activity, you get a benefit. You get a risk reduction from uh, mortality even. If you replace that 30 minutes of sedentary with moderate activity, you get a further reduction in risk. You replace it with vigorous activity, you get an even greater reduction. So the message is really replacing sedentary behavior with any type of activity is beneficial for sure. But <laughs> but you get a greater benefit with the more vigorous you can handle. So a typical young adult out there, I think could really benefit from replacing light activity or sedentary behavior with moderate levels of activity, for sure. Um, but perhaps those that have underlying health conditions, 
those that are uh, more elderly, those with obesity, they could replace it with light activity and still see a benefit. So I think it's this, this merging of the sedentary along the continuum of the physical activity spectrum that is where we need to think, think a little bit more about, you know. Unfortunately, at the time of the guidelines, the last guidelines, we didn't have a lot of data on the benefits of light intensity physical activity. Um, typically because it was hard to measure prior to the days of accelerometry, it's hard to measure light activity using questionnaires. So we were, there was always a focus on moderate to vigorous, you know, that's what we were measuring. But now I think uh, with the accelerometer data and, um, and all that coming out, we're starting to see the benefits of light activity, the benefits of total physical activity on health. So I think it's a very exciting time in our field to see all of the device measured uh, activity and health outcome data. It's, uh, it's pretty exciting to see. And, and you, you authored last year a paper uh, titled Two Retarget Increased Physical Activity or Less Sedentary Lifestyle in Battle Against Cardiovascular Disease Risk Development. So basically quite, quite the same, but this was more about cardiovascular. So what, what were the main, main arguments or findings in the, in the paper? Yeah, that, actually that paper basically summarized what I just said. <laughs> to, <laughs> <All right. laughs> so, to a large extent. Um, yeah. You know, it's kind of a, we were given that title. It was, a, it was an invited review for the journal. We were given that title. And uh, so we did our best uh, to talk about it. And the answer is, you know, you shouldn't target either one. You, know, you shouldn't just target sedentary or increased activity. You should do both. And this, our paper was focused on cardiovascular disease, as you mentioned. However, it really reflects the... Uh, the body of evidence that we know regarding health benefits of activity. A lot of the overall evidence is based on cardiovascular benefit. So it's, it's almost like a mirror. Yeah. So it, it, it was, it was basically around that message that, um, you know, our, our co-op, some of my co-authors like uh, Dr. Ross, Dr. Bob Ross, and I had a lot of discussions around this that, you know, if, where, where people can't do 150 minutes a week of moderate activity, we have to have a message for them. We can't just tell them to give up. You know, they have to understand they're going to get health benefits from, from the activity they are doing. And, and you mentioned, for example, the isotemporal substitution studies. Is there some new research methods that you are, you are excited about or which are taking this, this field further? Yeah, well, that is certainly one of them. The idea of considering the 24-hour day where we have sleep, sedentary, and activity, and we're trying to understand the interplay between them. So uh, the compositional data analysis as well. Uh, you know, uh, you know, there's arguments out there about the benefits of isotemporal versus compositional and whether they're really the same thing or, of course, they're a little different in their underlying structures and... Uh, I'm not an I'm not a statistical expert in that area, but I try to follow that literature, and and I do understand the idea that you know a 24-hour day is a closed system for sure, and if you take something away from sedentary, you have to replace it with something else, and we need special statistical models to do that for sure. We can't just use a regular old linear regression and and all that. So 
Uh, I'm very excited to see that data come out. Um, it, it just provides a little bit of a nuanced interpretation of the data uh, overall. Um, but people have to also re remember that it's theoretical, right? A lot of those studies are still using cross-sectional data. So it's saying, theoretically, if we replace 30 minutes of activity with 30 minutes of uh, something else, we will see this benefit. It's not as though they went into the study and did an intervention and actually replaced 30 minutes of, of time. It's theoretical, it's still theoretical. So uh, people need to realize that it's not, it's not like doing a randomized trial where you actually go in and you randomize people to 30 minutes of activity versus 30 minutes of something else. So it's different. And, and what do you think, what kind of studies are needed? We have studied obesity quite a bit. We understand it quite a bit, but still there's a lot of global problem with the obesity. What, what kind of studies are needed? Well, I do think we need now interventions to better understand um, kind of what we're learning from these compositional analyses. For example, you know, we've done a lot of studies showing sedentary behavior is bad for health. You know, it increases risks of cardiovascular disease, cancer, all-cause mortality. The, the question is, what is the alternative? What do we tell people to do? You know, there are some messages out there saying, oh, you should get up every so often, you know, every hour, get up for 10 minutes or every 30 minutes, get up for five minutes or whatever. There's very little data on that. These are basically expert opinions. You know, we don't have very good, you know, we don't have randomized trials showing that if you get up every, you know, every 30 minutes and stand up, you're going to see a benefit. We don't have the data. We, we think it's a good idea. Uh, we're starting to develop studies in that regard. But the idea is we need to better understand if we're going to tell people not to sit as much, what are we going to tell them to do? Are we going to tell them to stand? Well, that's good. We have some studies showing that standing reduces mortality. But we have a whole body of literature that people who stand all day at work, they have a lot of health problems. They have musculoskeletal problems, problems with back health, all these sorts of things with um, varicose veins, you know, in nurses. So maybe it's not a good idea to tell people to stand up all day. Or should we tell them to do 30 minutes of activity? You know, we don't know the message. And that's, that's where the media has come in. And the media took these early studies in epidemiology. You know, we, we published two or three papers showing sitting time is related to mortality. And of course, it went all over the internet, all over the media. But Still, it was in the it's, it was in its infancy. You know, we had we had sixty years or more of data on physical activity and health before we developed physical activity guidelines. We had maybe five years of data <laughs> on sedentary behavior and health, and of course, everyone is crying out for guidelines, and the media is going nuts, saying sitting is the new smoking or all this kind of stuff. You know, so they were really jumping the curve there. And I think a lot, I think if you read the literature, you'll see many of the uh, uh, scientists have pushed back on that. You know, you'll see they pushed back on that and said, hey, we need to take it a little slower here. We need to develop the evidence first. You know, so I think there's, there's some uh, consensus on that. We need a little bit better evidence. 
So basically for obesity, you said that we would need interventional studies, but the sedentary behavior research is in its infancy. What kind of studies do you think we need, need there? Yeah, again, uh, I, I think we need to move into interventions now. We need to understand um, if you take someone who's sitting eight hours a day at work and you reduce their sitting by two hours, you know, what are the health benefits? What are the potential risks of doing that? So I think that's where we need to move is more in the intervention field, you know, actually conducting sedentary behavior reductions in, in living humans. And if I go a little bit back for the obesity thing, you, you found success in this personalized two-year program, probably quite costly. Was it 40 meetings with the health coach? And so do you see this applicable in real life? How could it be done, done cost-effectively? That's what we're going to study now is the implementation of this. And we'll be doing cost-effectiveness analysis of our intervention now to see how cost-effective it is. The, you're right, it was, it, it was expensive to have these health coaches in person in the primary care clinic, um, but it was within the context of a research study. So of course, there's a lot of expenses related to that, you know, because you're evaluating it, you're measuring your success or your failure, you have salaries of the investigators and, and all of that. So when you partition out the science or the study costs versus what the actual intervention costs, that's where we'll see if we have a, a, a significant effect. But we feel that moving it into this online platform, uh, it will allow the health coaches to see a lot more patients in a very cost-effective manner and hopefully achieve similar types of results. So right now, there is very limited uh, benefits from our government in terms of reimbursing physicians or other health coaches for obesity treatment. And so that's what we're trying to change. We're trying to get legislation which would allow health coaches to be reimbursed for their efforts. So, of course, it's a big political thing as well as scientific, but um, we feel there's benefit to the patient. Of course, course not like i said we have 42 percent of our population with obesity obesity costs the united states 1.4 trillion dollars per year in healthcare costs and lost productivity so this is a it's not going away it's not going away we need to address it this podcast is sponsored by fibion uh, my name is dr paul batman and i'd like to just say a few words about fibion um, I've used it a number of times on different projects that I've been involved in and find that it's incredibly reliable, very valid and incredibly sturdy. I, I love the graphics that come with it. It really is very clear and can easily see the active in and active periods as well. So I'd certainly recommend Fibion to anyone that's interested in finding out more about sedentary behaviour, particularly the concept of sitting and how we can possibly break it up with some really good valid information. Fibion. From researchers to researchers, and and maybe if we if we move now to childhood obesity, what's 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 the status in in global global scale in childhood obesity? Uh, again, I think it's it's the the trends are are lagging behind what we see in adults, you know, but we see of course um, increases in childhood overweight and children with obesity 
throughout the world. There's been some recent, you know, epidemiological studies looking at that. And, um, you know, it depends on the region. Of course, we have global trends, but there's different regional variation. And we're trying to understand that a little bit better. Why some regions, such as North America, have such high levels um, and other regions as well. So I think it's a, a matter of looking at the environments in these different areas of the world and seeing what is what are the drivers there and see how we can maybe address those drivers of obesity. But certainly, um, as you know, uh, United States and other what you call westernized countries are kind of leading leading the charge in childhood obesity. Uh, and so we don't want to do what we've done. <laughs> you know, we've failed. We've failed so far in, in our countries. We want to learn from countries that have been able to maintain at least a lower, a lower prevalence, a lower curve for childhood obesity, I think. It's going to take a global, global effort. And do, do we have an understanding what's driving the childhood obesity? Is it uh, sedentary time, more sedentary time because there's more screen screen use? Is it energy-dense food? Or what, what is driving it in different countries or different cultural? Um, well, the answer is yes. <laughs> All of that. All of that, for sure. Um, certainly, the reductions we've seen in moderate to vigorous physical activity have uh, driven a, a portion of this. You know, we did conduct a study in, in 12 different countries with over 7,000 children wearing accelerometers. And in every country, in every country, there was a significant association between um, low moderate to vigorous activity and the odds of obesity across these 7,000 children. So it, it was very, very pervasive that that was a contributing factor or at least a correlate so um, that has certainly been there. But again, I, I mentioned earlier just how complex uh, obesity is um, to understand. So, you know, we, we, we knew that kind of the earlier you go in the um, lifespan, you know, you may have a better potential to prevent obesity. So, you know, we talk about school-aged children, and then the focus was down now on preschoolers and the early child care education centers and trying to intervene there to reduce screen time and improve nutrition. And then we're going earlier and saying, oh, uh, breastfeeding may be related to obesity and early childhood nutrition. Oh, but wait a minute. We go back now and look at the mother. And during pregnancy, we see that um, weight gain during pregnancy and obesity during pregnancy is affecting offspring and they have a higher risk of becoming obese oh but wait a minute now we have some studies showing that pre-pregnancy lifestyle may be impacting the next generation and so we actually have a study going on here now it's uh it's it's it's, it's a study in preconception so it's a study to improve physical activity levels in women before they get pregnant to look at the effects on the next generation so when I say that it's a complex problem now, I mean, these are just some layers. But within each of those layers, there's a, there's a huge amount of uh, research to be done. So we're going back now to the prior generation and improving physical activity of women 
before they're even pregnant and hoping that that will have an impact on the next generation. So, um, you know, it takes this idea to the extreme of, you know, intervening earlier and earlier in the life course. And, and is that via epigenetics or is there also some other, other factors in the, in the play? Certainly we have animal models showing epigenetic effects, but of course there's other issues as well. I mean, just the fact that, you know, a mother who is more physically active before she becomes pregnant um, has a healthier, um, you know, environment, like internal environment in terms of biology, you know, people who are physically active are healthier. So it would, it would seem to me that uh, a woman who becomes pregnant and she is physically active and has good nutrition, she has a very uh, healthier environment for her child, her fetus to grow right off the bat, you know, because even when you do an, an intervention in a, in pregnant mothers, you know, they've already got that biology, you know, even if you start in the second trimester, you have a whole trimester there where the child has um, been exposed to that environment. And, you know, you try to turn it around by providing exercise or nutrition in the later half of pregnancy, but maybe it's too late. Maybe it's too late by then. Yeah, really interesting findings. And if, if I ask about this this project, you've been leading this international study of childhood obesity, lifestyle and the environment. Could you, could you tell a little bit of that project and, and what you have, have learned doing it? This was, um, it was done years ago. I think it was 2014. It may have ended, uh, if I if I remember correctly, but this was um, uh, a dream I've had for years and years to maybe, you know, better understand the global. Uh, I'm not going to say determinants, but I'll say that the global kind of correlates of obesity in children. So we amassed a group of researchers from 12 different countries and developed a protocol. Uh, we all got together uh, here in Louisiana, developed a protocol for the study in which we would take 10-year-old children from all of these 12 countries and do a study where we measure physical activity using an accelerometer. We would try to measure diet the best we could using the best available type of uh, uh, questionnaires for 10-year-olds, which of course is still very difficult. And of course we had... Uh, information on the environment. So getting back to that environmental factor. So we studied the schools, we audited the school environment. We uh, did questionnaires for the parents about their neighborhood environment. And so we tried to capture a bunch of levels of influence there. And essentially it was a cross-sectional study. So we just measured the kids once, um, but we were able to get, like I mentioned, uh, over 7,000 children engaged in the study and providing data. So um, we had a lot of insights from the study. We've published over 100 papers from ISCOLE with all these people. Um, and uh, But aside from the science, to me, this was a, a great international collaboration because we had over 200 people working on the study in various capacities, from investigators to uh, uh, research coordinators to graduate students to undergraduate students and so it was a, a big effort and it contributed to 
research development in both in both uh, I'd say higher income countries and the lower income countries, we learned from each other about doing research in these different environments. And we also engaged many, many graduate students who wrote their thesis on this uh, on the data set. So from a research development angle, in terms of kind of doing a standard protocol around the world, where people are still using that protocol, they, they keep calling me and saying, oh, could we use this questionnaire from Miscoli? Could we do this? Could we do that? So I'm very excited to see that hopefully this study, um, beside the, the findings from the study, that it all have some, some legacy for the next generation of researchers. So we were very excited uh, to participate in that study. So, so it, it's it's not easy to collect like data in one city from hundred children, and you did it in in many different countries from seven thousand. What what were the learnings coordinating this and and getting everybody trained, getting the data, all the complexities? What what did you learn? Um, yeah, it was very complex. We we did regional trainings. You know, we brought several of the we brought we brought the lead investigators from each country together and train them on the protocol and the measurements. And we also brought several of their staff members and we trained them. We also then tested them. You know, we had online uh, testing where they had to be proficient in doing the measurements and understand the background of the measurement and all this. So essentially everyone in the study around the world who measured waist circumference, we know they did it following our protocol and they were certified to, to take that measurement. So it wasn't as though we just went to a school and had students measuring each other, whatever. We had highly trained personnel all around the world because of our training program. So we spent a lot of effort in the early years training. So we had manuals of procedures with photos. We had videos developed where they had to watch a video of someone getting their waist circumference measured or their height or their weight. So it was a very standardized protocol of training. And, um, you know, from there, that kind of, that's one of the key things, I think, in a multi-country study is the standardization of the protocol. And so I think that's what we instilled in many of the researchers was this, the rigor, the rigor of the scientific method. And so I, that's what I learned was that that really held the study together. So we are, we are running out of time soon. So one more question for young researchers. How, how to build a research career? What's your main points? How to, how to do successful research career? That's a great question. Um, you know, everyone has a different path in their research career. And not everyone will end up at the same place. And, you know, we probably don't have time to get into it now, but certainly there are different career paths to get to where you want to be. And so I think for the younger investigators, some good advice is really just to follow up any opportunities you can to collaborate with others. You know, we need to um, we need to take take advantage of opportunities as they present themselves, you know, and um, look for mentors where you can. You know, met the mentoring uh, of junior investigators, I think, is extremely important in our field. And you have traditional mentors, such as your PhD advisor, but you can look for other other mentors in the field as well to help you with different aspects of your career. So I think surrounding yourself with good mentors and taking advantage of every situation and 
reaching out for collaboration. I think that's key to success. Yeah, so you have a next meeting coming up, so I will finish here. Thanks a lot. It was super interesting discussions. Thanks for taking the time for this podcast. Absolutely, Ali. Thank you for having me. Thanks for joining us this week on Physical Activity Researcher Podcast. If you like the show, make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing or following the show on Twitter. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you for your support. If you found value in the show, we would really appreciate a rating on Apple Podcast or whichever app you're using. Or if you would, in a real old school way, simply tell a friend about the show. It would be a great help for us. We have a fantastic lineup of guests for forthcoming episodes, so be sure to tune in. Thank you all for your support and have a great day.